Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Chersky. Over the last 12 months on this podcast, we've voyaged a long way throughout the global ocean, of course, but we've also visited the many faces of the ocean, tiny islands, continental shelves, deep sea vents, coral reefs, the vast open ocean. And we've also delved into the lives of the tiniest and largest and most mundane and most spectacular ocean inhabitants. We've finally reached the end of this first series and to round the series off, we're doing things a little bit differently this month. Everyone who studies the ocean faces a dual challenge. Firstly, to understand how the ocean works now, but also the additional task of understanding how it's changing. As we've discussed on this podcast, many of those changes have really serious implications for the future, but we're still in a position to change that future if we choose to. So this week, I'll be joined by a panel of scientists to explore change in the ocean, the changes they've witnessed during their careers, the changes that matter most, and the changes they want to see in the future. And we'll be discussing the importance of ocean optimism. There is a lot that we can do, so we can be optimistic, and the time to do those things is now. In 2015 and 2016, the ocean experienced a rapid kick on a massive scale. It was a warming event whose influence rippled around the world, felt not just in the ocean, but on land as well. It was a version of a reasonably regular event in the Pacific called El Nino, but the extreme nature of this one led many to call it a super El Nino. The regular El Nino is a complex phenomenon which occurs naturally, and its effects span the Pacific Ocean. In a normal year, on the eastern side of the Pacific, the warm water that forms a lid over most of the ocean is pushed away by the wind, and this lets cold water slide up from underneath and touch the atmosphere. El Nino events occur when the warm ocean lid stays in place, choking off everything that depends on the cold water from underneath. Even a normal El Nino disrupts weather patterns, causing heavy rain in some places and drought in others. But the last seven years have been the warmest seven years on record, with peaks in 2016 and 2020. And in 2016, this additional warming sparked an extreme El Nino, with consequences that were felt around the world. It shifted global weather patterns and it wreaked havoc on marine life too. But I'm going to let our guests pick up the story and tell us more. And joining us today are Dr. Catherine Head, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Zoological Society of London and the University of Oxford. We have Dr. Mark Meakin, who's a principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. We have Professor Jessica Maywig from the Marine Futures Lab at the University of Western Australia. And we also have Professor Heather Calderway, head of the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme. So let's set the scene with what was happening in 2015 and 2016 and that extreme El Nino. So Catherine, I'd like to start with you. You study marine ecosystems and particularly coral reefs. So where were you when you first saw the impact of the heating events that year? So I was actually out to carry out our normal research in the Chagos Archipelago in early 2016. We hadn't been out there the previous year, but um, as we got in the water, we began to see the, the impacts of the bleaching event, which had actually occurred in 2015. So unfortunately, we saw um, many dead corals. There was actually, we realised later from our monitoring, about 60% dead coral cover on the reef. 
And as time went on throughout our trip, we actually witnessed uh, further bleaching. So the temperatures were rising as we were out there and we began to see the corals turning white as they do during these bleaching events. And they become really sort of stark white. And it's, it's really quite ghostly to see down there. And in the end, in 2016, those reefs actually underwent about 16 to 17 weeks of, of high temperatures which led to to further devastation of those reefs. Well, we'll go into the details in a bit, but first let's have a a broader sweep across our expertise here. So Mark, you're our expert on uh, reef fish. What did you see during 2015 and 2016? Well, I happened to be in the Maldives at the time. I was working on a project called the Global Thin Print Project, which was basically doing a global survey of the status of fish communities on coral reefs. And it was remarkable, really, because you got in the water at a place like the Maldives and you didn't need a wetsuit. (laughs) You didn't need a wetsuit for an hour and a half dive because the water was incredibly warm. It was near 30 degrees. It was so warm, in fact, that we were pushing these little camera systems around that we were videoing the fish in the coral with. And the cameras actually heated up so much within the little housings that they kept switching off. So that was a... It was just a a remarkably hot environment. And just paint a picture for us of the impact on the other species, because we know, you know, we've seen video images and some of us us have dived on very healthy coral reefs. And it's not just the coral, you know, there's all kinds of there's fish scooting around, there's crustaceans scooting around. What happens to the fish, for example, when you get a bleaching event? The effect on the fish has a much bigger lag. So in some cases, it's, it's actually not such a bad thing for some species. Species that feed on algae, now you can imagine that when the coral dies, there's lots more algae. Well, those species, such as the parrotfishes, for example, actually do pretty well. They, they don't mind uh, a bit of bleaching and a bit of more coral growth. In fact, what we found was that they grew a whole lot faster. And over time, you actually tend to get more of the parrotfishes. So that... That informs a cycle. Those parrotfish clean the algae off the, the dead areas of the reef, provide some settlement areas for new coral to, to actually settle on a reef and regrow. So it's part of a process, right? Um, for other species, though, it's fairly catastrophic. So lots of little planktivorous fish that feed on uh, little plankton, you know, shrimp-like animals in the water column. For those guys, they need live coral they settle into as, as protection when they're small. And when that live coral disappears, their populations collapse because the babies, the juveniles, the young of the year, have nowhere basically to hide. And so those populations tend to collapse and they don't really come back until the coral comes back. We will dig into that a little bit more a bit later on, but let's just carry on on our our broad look on the impacts. So Jessica, I'd like to come to you and the impact on the bigger pelagic species. So these are the species that are, they're not um, they don't live on the reef, they're, they're out in the open ocean. And, and so the events of 2015 and 2016, what happened out to those species in the open ocean then? I don't think we know. I mean, we've got some broad general ideas about the stresses that heat events cause, but ocean warming is the invisible assassin on open ocean fishes, the tunas, the sharks and, and so on, because Basically, it's really hard to see. If you go for a a dive on a reef, as Catherine and Mark have just said, you can actually see it with your own eyes. But out in the big blue, it's much harder to detect. There's some challenge that we know those animals will have faced, and I'm I'm sure we'll get into that later. But, you know, if you ask me where I was when I saw this, 
on a boat and I couldn't see it because it is the hidden assassin for the open ocean. And, and finally, Heather, on a global scale, what were the impacts of the events, the, the Super El Nino? Well, truly global. So I think that was the real wake up call and and it's not the first one so you know this is probably the third of these global events that are affecting reefs right away from the caribbean through the indian ocean to the pacific so we we saw on this occasion a sort of longer warmer more dramatic impact on the reefs of the world obviously with variation but some reefs notably the great barrier reef um, in australia and areas of reef that haven't actually been impacted by bleaching events like this before. So that's what's so dramatic about it. And, and you know, coral reefs are really this canary in the coal mine for, for climate change. It's, they're, they're so vulnerable to changes in, in temperature that we see it immediately. We see the reactions and then we see whether they have a chance to recover. And bleaching isn't an automatic death sentence. If the temperature comes down quick enough, then those reefs can recover but in this case unfortunately we saw mass mortality associated with that warming event so we're then as as Catherine said that's a long slow process to recover from and if temperatures keep high or keep coming back then that makes it harder and harder for reefs of the world to recover. It's it's very hard to hear these things but I think it's important to listen because otherwise you know, this is the motivation and the knowledge we need to act. So let's get into the knowledge and what you were all studying and learning as this was going on. So coming back to you, Catherine, you said you're in the Chagos Archipelago. What were you doing there before the, the bleaching happened? So we'd actually gone out there to, to carry out our regular research, which for me involved collecting environmental DNA samples and looking at the, the cryptic um, fauna on the reefs themselves. So things like crabs and sponges and stuff which live within the reef structure themselves, trying to document the, the quantity and the different communities that live out there. But as we were out there, we obviously began to see the, the bleaching taking place and and we felt it was really important to prioritise monitoring the, the effect that that was having at the time. So we began to undertake some surveys of the reefs. You literally lay out what we call a transect tape, which is, you know, a regular tape that you might have in your house. And we'll lay that out for 30 metres along the reef, along a standard depth. For us, that's eight to, to 10 metres. And then we swim very slowly along that line with our cameras and we record what's underneath and next to that measuring tape and then we're able to take that that video back home with us and analyze that at a later date so that we can actually look and see how much coral cover there is how much of it is bleached how much of it might be dead etc and because we've done these surveys in the past, so for us, we'd done them in 2012 and 2013, that allows us to obviously look at change over time. So we were able to then document how much of that reef had unfortunately degraded since the 2015 bleaching event as, as a direct result of these increases in sea surface temperatures, which we're seeing, and also how much of it was actually bleached at the time that we were there. I'd like to come back to the, the methods there because it sounds, I mean, perhaps to someone who um, has not done these studies themselves, you know, laying out a tape measure and taking photographs perhaps sounds quite, you know, it's, it's quite a simple technique in some ways, but but it's important because 
you can't take big photographs of a reef. You don't have the equivalent of a satellite image where you can cover huge amounts of ground. So actually the work of knowing what species are there is you have to go and look in a specific place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we try to obviously get a broad sort of overview of where we're studying. So we'll do that that very small, you know, 30 metre transit, but we'll do it multiple times at multiple locations so that in that way we can try and get a broader understanding of what's happening. And, you know, there are some ways that you can do things through remote sensing and that, but ultimately if you want to get that detail, if you want to know what's happening directly, you know, under your nose on the reef, um, that's really the best way to do it. And how frustrating is it to, to be in an environment like that? I, I mean, it feels like you must feel very helpless because you, you're watching this massive thing and, and I guess there's nothing you can do about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was about to set, to use that same term, helpless. It's, um, it's, it's quite shocking to see those, those corals turn that stark white because you're used to seeing them, this really vibrant sort of um, yellows and browns and purples and pinks, you know, it's particularly when the light's shining down on the reefs. There's really stunning colours that, you know, many people I'm sure have seen on TV and and in uh, photos and video footage. So to see them turn that, that stark white and and the reefs to just kind of go quite eerily quiet. I mean, as, as Mark said, you know, many of the fish, these planktivores sort of just disappear that same question for Mark and Jessica. You were out in different parts of the ocean, each of you, and you were you were watching this happening. How how do you react to that? How do you deal with it? Uh, maybe Mark first. Well, I mean, to some extent, you know, change and and disturbance happens on coral reefs, you know, naturally, right? You know, having spent a career diving on coral reefs, you, you get a bigger perspective of change, but seeing the extent of this was just unprecedented. And you knew in your heart of hearts that something different was happening. And you could see it in the big, really old corals, the things like the huge parietes heads and what have you that were bleaching out. Some of those things were four or 500 years old, right? So some of, this, some of these events were clearly unprecedented. It, 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 it's a worry for sure. There's two layers, I guess, of my experience with the open water systems. It, it's really difficult to see it. You don't see it graphically. Uh, but I'll support what Mark is saying. I've been diving for 40 years. And when you look at a reef that is full of white bones of corals, and when because of fishing, and let's not forget the interactive <laughs> play between fishing and, and bleaching, when you see that these reefs have also been emptied of sharks and large predators that are so important to maintaining reef health, that combination, you know, it's perfect storm to make it so much more difficult for these animals to, to survive. So I, I guess for me, you know, from a professional perspective, working on pelagics, it is a lot harder to see. And that, that's a problem because we know that pelagic species are being affected by ocean warming, but convincing policymakers and decision makers about their need to act on this is a lot more difficult when you don't have pictures of dead white coral. Well, we will come to your specific work, but first let's go to Mark. And I'd like to come back to this question. You described that, you know, fish react differently during these these big bleaching events. So is there a change in the species that are present? You know, the fish that are there, do they do, they do different things? Do you get different fish? How, how do the fish themselves change? Oh, yes, you certainly do. So... There's a build-up in herbivorous species, things like the surgeon fishes, the parrot fishes, 
the rabbit fishes, they will do pretty well out of the whole equation, right? Um, because essentially they've got a whole new food source out there. Usually their food is crowded into smaller patches by live coral. When everything's dead, that's all covered in algae, and, and suddenly they've got this massive food resource. And what we found was that the, the fish, particularly the parrotfish, really grew a whole lot faster. They actually really benefited from this. But, of course, the other side of that coin is anything like the butterfly fishes or the small planktivorous fishes that needed the live coral, they were goners pretty quickly. And was there a change in what the fish were doing? Or were they just, if they were winners, they just got on with that? And if they were losers, they just kind of quietly vanished? Well, you know, I think one of the things that was happening is probably if you've got no live coral to shelter in, you're pretty quickly eaten by uh, anything that can actually get its mouth around you. So I think they, they do disappear fairly rapidly. The other, you know, the effect on the herbivorous fish is a, is a slower burn. Um, it takes them a while to build up the resources and the energy. They put that into reproduction. You know, you get a, you get a year or so and you've suddenly got a whole lot more herbivores on the reef. And it's a fairly standard pattern. We see it lots and lots of places around the world where coral reefs go through these types of disturbances. I've kind of got this picture in my head of, you know, in, in disaster movies or sci-fi things when there's been some big societal collapse and you get looting and rioting and, you know, <laughs> the, the power balance shifts. And it sounds kind of like that on the on a reef. Is that, is that a fair uh, analogy? That's fair. But, you know, the, the, the parrotfishes and the, the surgeonfishes and everything else are, are laying the foundation there for the recovery of coral because they're actually grazing these areas of reef that keep the algae down and allow the baby corals to settle. So you've got to have some, some corals alive there to start with so you can have baby corals in the first place, but, but they clear out those areas and they actually allow those baby corals a little bit of space to actually grow through the algae and stop the algae overgrowing. So there is, you know, we heard before that it might take five to six years for a reef to recover. Is Does that biodiversity come back then after a big bleaching event? It, it certainly does. Look, you know, the usual recovery rate for a big bleaching event somewhere is about 10 years, actually. So that's what we've seen pretty much everywhere, you know, Great Barrier Reef, really for that whole cycle to move through. It's, it's a natural thing. It does happen naturally. The real issue here is the extent the, the fact that there aren't any patches left really to, to essentially resupply the, the rest of the reefs and how frequently that bleaching is happening too. And that's the real kicker in the story. Well, let's move on to Jessica. And, and you described that, it, you know, you said it was very hard to see these changes, but, you know, let's, let's take a look at this from a point of view of a fish. So a pelagic fish, you know, out swimming in the open ocean, the water around it gets a bit warmer. So for that fish, what, what does warmer water around it change? Lack of oxygen. You have large fish that are swimming a lot and their energetic demands are high and they can't get enough oxygen. Then that's going to have knock-on impacts on reproduction. It's going to have knock-on impacts on their ability to cope with other stressors like fishing. And then the second big challenge that these animals face is that the oceans are a highly tuned environment and the whale sharks show up at Ningaloo Marine Park in northwestern Australia when the plankton bloom happens. So if those events disconnect because they're responding differently to the temperature in the water, that again has knock-on impacts on these animals that are depending on, on certain events. And then the third challenge I would say, which we need to keep thinking of these as twin pressures. 
is that because so many of the open ocean animals, tuna, sharks, are subject to such heavy fishing pressure, to ask them to be resilient to climate change at the same time that they're having to deal with, with heavy fishing is, is a massive challenge. And, and that's why initiatives like the 3% of marine parks by 2030 are so important for the open ocean. So I think the idea of species actually not being able to breathe as well will be new to lots of people. So let's just explore that a little bit. Does that affect species, lots of species in a similar way? I mean, I can imagine if you're a big fish and you're hunting, you know, like you get food by chasing and that's very energy intensive. And so you need to take deep breaths. It might affect you more. Is that is that the way it works? Body size is a big thing. So gills, which is how fish breathe, are basically a flat surface, whereas our bodies, as we all know, are a 3D surface, right? So our 3D volume. So as you get bigger and weigh more, their gills don't keep up. They don't grow as fast. So the bigger you are, the higher your oxygen demand is and the narrower your source is of being able to accumulate oxygen. And what that does then is it has an impact on your fitness And that means it has an impact on your reproduction. And so the most vulnerable animals are the biggest animals. And a lot of open ocean animals are big. (laughs) Well, one of the most famous, the big fishes in the ocean is tuna. So so let's pick tuna as an example. Um, So just paint me a little picture of what a tuna would be doing during its life and and when during its life cycle and, you know, its feeding and all the rest of it, that these things would matter. Let's take yellowfin tuna. Its first challenge is surviving from birth to getting big enough to not be eaten. And then as it goes about its life, it needs to start thinking about when it's going to reproduce. That's pretty, pretty basic. They move around quite a bit. So they move with oceanographic features and they're trying to find the best place where they're minimizing the impact on their metabolism and and their growth. Plus, they're busy trying to avoid all the fishing fleets. So when we put climate change on that, all of a sudden, they're probably growing slower once they get to certain size. The places that they used to go might not be as profitable from a food perspective. And all of a sudden, the population is facing more challenges. So if we're talking about building resilient oceans, we need to recognize that climate change is just another layer of stress for 75% of our planet, these open ocean areas. And it's another layer of stress on animals that are highly valuable to our economies and to our food security. So people are going to keep chasing them. For Mark and Catherine, we've talked about the impact of a single heating event, really. But in a world where these heating events are likely to become more common, could you just tell us what what happens when these are, this isn't just one, but, but they're coming more often, you know, stronger and more frequently? Catherine, let's start with you. As obviously climate change increases its impacts, we're expecting to see increases in sea surface temperatures. And if we see that, then that's going to potentially lead to increases in these bleaching events. So increase in the frequency of them, perhaps the extent and the severity of them. And it's that that's the real problem for coral reefs, as we've seen in the past. And as Mark said, these are, you know, natural events to a certain extent. These reefs can recover. And in Chagos, we've we've seen that they can recover given enough time and, you know, enough protection from other impacts to build up that that resilience. But 
The real problem is that we're expecting to see an increase in, in the frequency of these events and that will make it hard for the reefs to, to recover um, in the long term. So, Mark, is it the case here that, I mean, we're, we're talking about change and, and you said that, you know, oceans do change on short timescales. They change little bits, but we're looking at almost a different type of change here. There's sort of severe, frequent events. It's, so it's not just change itself. It's the type of change that's happening. Is, is that what's causing the problems? Oh, look, absolutely. That's the cr- exact crux of the matter. You know, coral reefs are built to withstand change, but it's the scale of change and it's the frequency of that change. So they recover on that 10-year cycle, but imagine if, you know, five years into the recovery, they get hit again by another bleaching event or a major cyclone. They ratchet down, you know, and have to start from scratch again to recover. They get hit again. And there's this constant ratcheting down of of the coral communities, and that's the real worry. That's what everyone is really concerned about. And that's why so much of the research out there is now looking to try and enhance resilience in coral reefs and really try and speed that process up of recovery or at least safeguard it by removing some of the other aspects. Like Jessica said, you know, with the fishing and things like that, removing some of the other stresses that are out there to give reefs a really a bit of breathing space. Well, we're now six or seven years on from the the Super El Nino that we were talking about. So that's long enough to see some of the consequences of that. So what's happened in the years since then? Catherine, let's start with you. What's happened since 2015, 2016? So we've we've begun to see recovery on the, the reefs in Chagos, which is obviously really positive. Um, in fact, almost um, immediately we've begun to see uh, what we call coral recruits, which are baby corals, that begin to settle onto the hard substrate and uh, begin to grow. So from 2017, when we next went back, we were beginning to see that, which is, you know, is, is really good news. And as the years have gone by, those coral recruits have grown. So, for instance, this year when we were back, many of those recruits were about 30 centimetres or so in diameter. We don't yet have that structural complexity back to the reef, which we've seen sort of in about 2012. And obviously we hope that there's no large increases in sea surface temperature to really put those corals back again and influence their recovery. And the Chagos Archipelago is a protected area, so you perhaps might expect it to be recovering better maybe than other areas. How does it compare with other reefs around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, you know, one of the great things about Chagos. Obviously, we have, you know, the reefs are able to, to recover quicker in general, whereas you go to places perhaps like the coastline of Kenya and Tanzania and where you've got huge human impacts, which puts that additional stress on those reefs and and can reduce how quickly they can recover from these sort of additional climate change induced events. And Jessica, what have you seen out in the open ocean in the six or seven years since that event? Is it, it can you can you tell now what the consequences have been? I think we can generally. So you know, we all often talk about um, people heading to warm places uh, for their holidays. Uh, But what we're seeing in Western Australia, for instance, is a poleward movement of of fish species, even in the open ocean. So it's basically getting too hot um, in the tropics. So a lot of the the animals are are moving further south. 
it doesn't necessarily work well for them. And I guess the other question is, if they're moving south, who's moving in, right? So what we're basically seeing is uh, massive um, changes in distribution of animals that will have ecological consequences, both for um, the habitats that they're leaving and moving into, and also for those populations as well in terms of their resilience. The other thing I continue to see over the last seven years is that um, the abundance of animals just continues to go downwards. And that's a direct uh, consequence of exploitation. So we haven't solved, um, our best fisheries management has not yet solved that challenge. And Heather, I wondered if you had anything to add about what's, you know, the, the last six or seven years and, and the fallout, if you like, from, from that El Nino. I think for me, it was like Catherine of visiting sites in different parts of the world, which you're really familiar with because you've you've seen them over time. And there was this 1998 global bleaching event. But the in places that are well protected, that are more, more remote, these ocean wilderness areas, we saw those those recover over 10 years. So we sort of knew there was a happy ending. And what I find really challenging was firstly going back to these incredible places and, and seeing them really turn into sort of ghostly graveyards. You didn't have that vibrant colour and and you didn't know whether there was going to be the this happy ending this time. But then as you got closer to the reef and you sort of looked down on these skeletons, you'd, you'd see almost like a little platter of canapes, these tiny baby corals coming back. So that felt hopeful that there is there is opportunity but certainly it's the sort of recognizing the difference between what's going on on a local level and then what's going on at a global level and then as a marine scientist what you can do and what you can influence and where the real challenges are in in making fundamental change well let's get to what we can do so each of you i'm going to ask what can be done to help protect the ocean like what are the priorities now for protection. So Catherine, let's start with you. You know, the overarching goal has got to be reducing our carbon emissions. And obviously we've we've just had COP26 and, you know, we are making progress in that, perhaps not the progress that we would hope to be making, but we've got to continue really to, to really strengthen our efforts to reduce those carbon emissions, both on a, a global policy level and through our own actions, you know, on a local level. In terms of the reefs themselves, what we can do is to, to try and continue to strengthen the local management of many of these reef systems so that, as we talked about, they'll hopefully be experiencing less local stress in terms of the fishing pressure that they're under, perhaps the water quality, etc., and that's going to hopefully enable them to, to withstand these increases in sea surface temperature and other climate change effects that we're seeing Hopefully that will buy us a bit of time effectively to influence our own climate change carbon emissions. Thank you. Jessica, what do you see? What are your priorities? What needs to be done to help protect the ocean? I'm 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 pretty one-eyed about this. I think the the strategy of putting 30% of our oceans in highly protected areas by 2030 is what we need to do as a matter of priority. We need to move away from the partially protected marine parks that we love to establish. And when did your sex ed teacher ever tell you that partial protection worked? So really getting that that backbone of protection, which will from exploitation, which will then allow 
a higher level of resilience to the much thornier issue of reducing carbon emissions will, as Catherine said, buy us some space, but yep, um, proper protection of our oceans and a reduction of exploitation. The fact that, you know, the best estimates are that we literally removed 60% of all fish from the ocean since the 1950s. Ima imagine, you know, driving through a national park and seeing 60% of all the trees gone. We need to move away from that to build resilience. And how about our behaviour? You know, because one thing we haven't really discussed directly is that there are humans on the ocean, there are ships on the ocean. You know, we go places, those ships do things, not just fishing, but the trade. And and those have an impact on marine life. So, so Mark, what about those things that we do directly that, that have an, a local impact on the ocean? Well, one of the big things for shipping, of course, is, is noise. You know, there's an enormous amount of the of noise in the ocean these days that, uh, that that wasn't there, you know, just a few, even a few decades ago. Cavitation from propellers on large ships creates a huge amount of noise in the oceans. And from what we've been looking at, that noise is creating a lot of stress for things like whales and hurting them in other ways too. In fact, uh, northern right whales may soon go extinct simply because of the fact of, of ship strike. And what that's about is basically large ships essentially run these animals down at the surface of the ocean. We can do things about that very, very simply by redesigning propellers, by slowing you know, ships down in shipping lanes. This can have immediate and really important impacts and improving the, the, the likelihood of, of these populations surviving. And Heather, how about you? Not just things we could do, but perhaps the attitudes we need in order to protect the ocean. Yes, I, I mean, you talked about the humans using the ocean, but also particularly in the context of coral reefs is how much we depend on those. And we are an integrated part of a, of a system. So we can see small island nations that are big ocean nations that are really leading the way in terms of how to, to manage, protect both the, the reefs, their sources of livelihoods and, and the people that depend on them. A growing voice and that voice being listened to of, of indigenous people, of traditional practice, of local ecological knowledge and, and actually that the solutions don't necessarily need to be developed in a laboratory but have actually always exist. It's often been trampled on or, or overridden over time. So there's you know, that sort of human dependence is not only on, on food, on tourism, but the fundamental role that reefs provide in, in protecting coastlines. Um, and when you go through these bleaching events and you lose that structure of the reef, that's really important for the fish, but it's also really important in terms of losing that ability to protect coastlines. So in terms of behaviour, um, I think it is recognising that, um, you know, Ocean action is climate action, and climate action is um, ocean action, and and that was something positive from from COP twenty six that we did see both in in what was being said at COP that the recognition that that was the case, but also if we're going to really get out of this mess and make meaningful commitments, that's going to rely on including the ocean in that discussion, and that 
the voices that were part of that conversation were very different. You know, Indigenous people, youth, business, actually quite a different set than just the marine scientists. Although, of course, we're all there shouting as much as everybody else because we also know. I mean, we, we are in a position where we have the knowledge, we have the evidence, and it's very, very clear. Well, something that did come up that certainly seemed to be discussed at this COP more than previous COPs was what are being called nature-based solutions. So could you just give us a brief overview of how nature-based solutions can be used in or near the ocean? The, it's recognising that, that the nature's kind of had it worked out for a really long time. So if you take something like mangrove forests, you know, they're there at that interface between um, land and the sea, uh, doing an amazing job of uh, protecting coastlines, of being nursery grounds for fish, of uh, trapping enormous amounts of carbon. So uh, we've also been doing an amazing job of uh, cutting them down as mangrove infested swamps and switching them out for for fish ponds and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, protecting and restoring uh, mangrove forests becomes a really uh, effective way of uh, a nature based solution. You, it's a win 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 um, of of doing that carbon sequestration role that we desperately need, uh, but also being part of the way of uh, we can start to re- restore. Um, those uh, fisheries, we can start to restore coastlines, we can protect people from the increasing frequency and severity of storms. And many species that live on reefs spend part of their life history on mangroves. So it is recognising we have this one ocean, it is interconnected. And when we started talking about, you know, white corals, we then cascade onto the reef fish, we cascade onto the open ocean species, we then has a cascade effect onto the people who depend on them. You know, we have discussed a lot of very serious things that are happening in the ocean now, but I would like to talk about ocean optimism because clearly we're not really going to change anything unless we feel optimistic about the potential for change. So Heather, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your ocean optimism. What have we got to be hopeful about? Well, you have correctly described a sort of litany of disaster and everything that we've done to the ocean, haven't we? And it's quite depressing when you put it all together in a in a long list like that. And I guess that's why I feel so motivated by being an ocean optimist is that if you focus on all of the problems, then it, it becomes really disempowering. You just feel that everything is too huge to make a difference. And then working in, in marine science and conservation is thinking about what solutions are out there and what can you do. And what, I guess, motivates me to get out of bed in the morning is that there are solutions. We do know what we need to do. You know, wherever you go in the world, you see amazing people doing incredible things for the ocean at a local level from all sectors of society. And that becomes really exciting to see and it it, it motivates you. So I think we, we have many of the solutions. In fact, governments around the world have committed to many of them, including ocean protection. And just seeing that through to implementation is where we have a role, both in increasing that evidence base that can help inform decisions, adapting to decisions as things change over time, but also just pushing ahead and make sure we're being really clear about what needs to be done and the timeframes. Ocean optimism is not about being naive or ignoring even the serious threats facing the ocean. It's just saying, there is a way forward. There are solutions out there. And if we focus on the positives and the way that we're looking from our leaders to members of every community to act, then we can make change together. 
rather than just feeling overwhelmed or depression um, because you can't do anything. You feel it's all out of our hands when actually we can all do something to help the ocean. I think that's it's a very important point that it's there's a difference between naivety and being optimistic that actually it has to be the motivation for doing stuff because it's doing stuff that will make a difference. So let's come to Catherine, Mark and Jessica and hear your view on ocean optimism. Um, let's start with Jessica. So my optimism comes from the fact that the conversation has changed fundamentally. And I would say only in the last two or three years, that business is starting to actually see ocean challenges as an existential crisis for themselves. So at COP26, there was a big announcement for a project on mapping blue carbon funded by an insurance company. And so to see the business community engaging in a much more real manner and investing in making a difference uh, fills me with optimism. I think it's, it's very easy to be depressed about the situation, but if you had some ideas about maybe changing things and some simple things you, you could do and you didn't go out and do them, that wouldn't be depressing. That'd be tragic. And, and that's the situation we're in because I think all of us here have good ideas about what we could do. And it's incumbent on us to actually get out there and just try and do some of them. And remarkable, the energy of students and postdocs and people around me who, who were all keen to do the same thing. And, and really, all I have to do in that situation is harness that. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not depressed about it. I'm feeding off that energy and, and really trying to, you know, push forward. I, I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for everybody. So building on Mark's comment about, you know, students and, and people working in, in marine sciences, I think there's been another really big shift there in that we are seeing scientists talking more publicly and in different fora than they used to, which was more about academic publications or scientific conferences. But we now see more scientists stepping up to be able to share their knowledge, share their research to help drive change, to help motivate change. And we're seeing some of the younger researchers really being at the forefront of, of both driving that change and using the scientific knowledge in the right way to speed up that research to management, research to policy uh, loop to make a difference as quickly as we possibly can, partly because they're living through this time uh, of unprecedented change and seeing how it's impacting the environments they're studying and how much they care about it. They don't want to be writing obituaries. They want to be writing about optimism, recovery and solutions. Well, that is a great way to finish the contributions from our panel. I spend a lot of time studying the ocean, talking about it, sharing knowledge and ideas about it and listening to the reactions of a wide range of people to ocean issues. And in the past two to three years, there has been a huge change in the way that people think about the ocean. It's only a start but there is a far wider appreciation of what's happening beneath the waves, of the beauty and complexity of ocean ecosystems, how much the ocean does for us, and of course, the general message of this podcast that the ocean matters. For so many years, it felt like banging on the door of public conversation and never being allowed in unless you were talking about a particularly pretty fish. But that is so clearly changing. And although there's far more work to do on ocean literacy in our society, I'm finally seeing the willingness to learn and take action. And that's the source of my optimism, that once people are willing to listen, you can really start to have conversations that will lead to shifts in behaviour. And optimism is why we've been making this podcast for the past year. We care about the Asian conversation and we want to keep it going and make it bigger. 
The rhythm of the podcast is about to change a little bit in the immediate future. There's one bonus episode in a couple of weeks' time, and then a short gap until the second series starts in the new year. But if you've enjoyed this series, you can do two things to help us keep the ocean at the forefront of people's minds. Firstly, all our Ocean Matters podcasts so far are archived. They are available now and they will stay available. So do share them with your friends and there'll be more new episodes soon. And secondly, you can keep up with what's going on by looking at the Bertarelli website, marine.science, as well as lots of other places. There are lots of people talking about the ocean now. So do keep sharing your ocean enthusiasm with your friends. I would like to thank our fabulous panel today, Catherine Head, Mark Meakin, Jessica Maywig and Heather Coldaway. I'm Helen Chersky and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts.